Mr. Putin, how did you afford that one million Patek Philippe watch if your salary is just $140,000 a year? It was a gift from a good friend. I can't refuse a gift. Isn't such an expensive watch out of place with your modest lifestyle in the 800-square-foot apartment and your trailer? Duh, but not at a place with the gold-covered palace, the mega-yachts, and the planes that are not mine either. I'm just a poor servant of the state. Hello, Sandra. Hi, Neil. Before we move on, I want to say a few things. Today, as we record this, on my birthday, I woke up to a leaked draft opinion from the Supreme Court, who are looking to strike down Roe versus Wade. And in this draft, Justice Samuel Alito says, the inescapable conclusion is that a right to abortion is not deeply rooted in this nation's history and traditions. I'd like to tell Justice Alito that many things are not rooted in our nation's history and traditions, like women's voting rights, women's rights in general. Racial justice is definitely not deeply rooted in our nation's history and traditions. Privacy rights is a concept not rooted in our nation's history and traditions. Privacy as a word is not even in the Constitution. Anyway, the list can go on and on, but the main point is... This is the first time in our history when daughters will have less rights than their mothers. And my message to Justice Alito is go f*** yourself and for the Biden administration, pack that mother court. Pack it. I know that I get my literary references into Sandra's much frustration, but <laughs> uh, shout out once again to our boy John Milton in, this, in oh the 1600s, <laughs> in the 1600s. Okay. John Milton was the one of the first, I will say, in England to publicly advocate for basically no-fault divorce, that either husband or wife should be able to leave their spouse if they're not happy, if they're Mm -hmm. being abused or whatever. You should just be able to dissolve a marriage. And that was a fairly radical concept at the time. And of course, here we are in 2022... And all of our Supreme Court judges will be on to that next, I'm sure, that uh, marriage is now prison. Uh, We'll be hearing about that one in 2024, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't look like it's going to go well. But look, back to our podcast. Let me calm down a bit. And I also want to say hello to our dubious people here. And they are listening to us from so many countries. Last I checked, over 60 countries. We love you guys. We love you all. Especially the people in Ukraine. They're such, they're doing very well, all things considered. I know that uh, they have suffered just horrendous atrocities at the hands of the Russian army. And uh, I'm surprised you didn't say anything about dogs and cats in Ukraine again. And uh, we've been talking (laughs) about those on the phone lately. Yes, well, I was just about to actually, because I kept seeing online that in the midst of all the chaos, Ukrainian rescue services are also saving kitties and doggies, not only people. And again, we talked about this before, but, you know, that tells me all I need to know. Ukraine, we love you. Stay strong. Okay, so who's our bad guy for today? 
I mean, do I even need to say it? The Tsar, obviously. <laughs> Man, this guy is wearing thin. <laughs> Not really. Putin is loaded, man. He's got the palace with its own border security and no-fly zone on the Black Sea. He's got yachts, airplanes, and a former gorgeous gymnast wife 30 years younger than he is. He really seems to have it all. But not Ukraine. And it's killing him. Literally and figuratively. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That hand in his meeting with Sergei Shoigu, it was stiff before when he walked. But now it's a whole nother level of decrepit. It looks like he's deteriorating fast, at least mentally. The stress seems to be getting to him. But I'm not going to lie. I'd rather be stressed on a, I don't know, $700 million yacht than in a tiny apartment. So, Well, if we're going to talk about Putin's wealth... We have to start by saying that on paper, he really doesn't have much. The way he does ownership, shall we say, is a bit different from the way Western people own things. Or maybe not so much. We'll explain that as we go. But in any case, the man that some say may be the world's richest did not start with much about 30 years ago. No, he did not. When the Berlin Wall fell, Vladimir, Vlad, let's call him Vlad, and his now ex-wife Lyudmila left Dresden and returned to St. Petersburg with only a car and a washing machine. Everything he knew was gone, and he even considered getting a job as a taxi driver to make ends meet. But when he got into the mayoral administration of his former law professor, Anatoly Sobchak, who he later had murdered, by the way, Putin found his calling in the new corporate Russia by being the guy who doled out favors, contracts, permits, ownership of state property, all that sort of thing. And in that respect, he's not a whole lot different, I suppose, from like these treasury employees and IRS employees who go on to work at Goldman Sachs and tell them how to beat the government regulations and investigations, I suppose. Yes, and look, that's how him and Boris Berezovsky became, well, not friends, but good, you know, acquaintances. He helped the oligarchs get a permit and resolve some paperwork he needed approved to open a Mercedes-Benz center. So Putin facilitated that. He helped Berezovsky get richer. Then Berezovsky helped Putin get in power. Putin disliked that Berezovsky started criticizing him after the Kursk disaster. So he suicided Berezovsky later on in London on foreign soil. That's a recurring theme with Putin. Often his former friends, mentors, the oligarchs. By the way, Berezovsky got rich buying the Lada factory at a very small price. He foresaw that after the privatization process, he will make millions. The history of the 21st century is written in Ladas. Tell the people that Lada story again. It just never gets old. <laughs> yes. So as most of our listeners know already, I'm originally from Romania. And as a child, during communist Romania, the Lada car was all the rage. And my grandfather had one, an olive green colored one with horrific tapestry on the seats. Oh my God, it was so bad. And my grandparents loved that car. They took really good care of it. Um, so once I got sick and I vomited on that tapestry and I could tell that my grandmother was feeling as bad for the car as she was feeling for me. Like, I, I mean, I don't know why she was more upset that I was feeling sick or that I ruined her car. But look, back then things were not 
you know, easy to get. People valued every little possession they had. And because, for example, houses and apartments were not really yours, they belonged to the state, so everything belonged to the state. And also, you could only drive a car you owned on certain weekends only. Cars ending with an even number were allowed one weekend, the ones with an even number the next weekend. So if you wanted to go on a vacation with friends, you needed friends who had whatever car plate type number you had, even or uneven, so... But yes, there's a difference between, you know, how the IRS operates and how the Kremlin goes about things. So when you try to hide your wealth or trick the IRS or the FDIC, you might get a fine and a short sentence in a white collar prison. But when you cheat the Kremlin, you go for a darker ride from which you might never come back. And your chauffeurs will be two guys in tracksuits and gold chains. Yeah, when Putin sends two guys to pick you up and they want you to open the door... Don't touch the doorknob. That's how he got his law school professor, Sonchak, poison on a doorknob. Uh, we cited a book in a previous episode by Jock Derrida, which poked fun at the idea of the specter of communism haunting Europe. It's called Specters of Marx, which is a quote from the manifesto. But more seriously, in its contents, the book explains some real issues that the post-Soviet world did not anticipate. For example, one of its chapters was about states within states, such as drug cartels. And really, Putin's inner circle is a shining example of this. With his former KGB friends from Dresden, he built a state within a state that enriched itself and its members until they were wealthy enough and powerful enough to get rid of Yeltsin and put themselves in charge. Yes, so he helped create the oligarchs. So yes, Putin did build a state within a state. And with Yeltsin, they struck a deal and promised Yeltsin to not prosecute him or any of his family members for corruption if he steps down from the presidency. And he did. Putin gave him lifetime immunity for any legal action in regards to all the money Yeltsin stole. So Putin's model is like those drug cartels, the first offer is a bribe, a promise, but the second offer is one that, shall we say, you cannot refuse. Yeltsin was smart. He accepted the first offer. Yeah, mafia, FSB, not really much difference. They kind of work from the same model. Yeah, and that's what Putin did to Berezovsky as well. Basically, he told him you can have all the pillages you looted, you know, you can have a lavish life and to the oligarchs in general. But stay away from political power and do not criticize me or you'll end up hanging by a shower curtain rail or Novichokt. That's it. So we should go through some examples of Putin's personal luxuries. There was a rather boring court case in the UK in 2010. It involved a dispute about a shipping company which resulted in a 421-page legal ruling. And perhaps the only non-boring thing in it is one sentence which mentions a yacht named Olympia which was presented to none other than Mr. Putin. The yacht has three separate layers of interior compartments and sleeps 10 people comfortably with room for 16 staff and crew. It was a gift to Putin by the owner of the Chelsea football team, Roman Abramovich, who has been in the news here lately a bit. Yes, Abramovich has been forced to sell his football team. And it seems like he has a cool $4.4 billion headed his way for the trouble. In the past few days, he's informed would-be investors that they need to up their bids by $672 million each because he wants to, quote, set up a relief fund for Ukraine. 
My knee-jerk reaction to that is to suspect it's a lie, but the rumor is he may have been the victim of an attempted poisoning as well, so maybe I'm wrong on that. Yeah, I know the Ukrainian president Volodymyr Zelensky urged Western countries a few weeks back not to sanction Abramovich, as he might be trying to influence Putin to end the war. I think the UK sanctioned him anyway, but the US didn't. The poisoning thing is very weird, though. It happened on March 3rd when Abramovich went to the Ukraine-Belarus border to facilitate peace talks, right? So both Abramovich and the Ukrainian negotiators were poisoned, not fatally. This was a warning poisoning, okay? So the symptoms were clearly those of nerve agent poisoning, piercing pain in the eyes, peeling skin. This was a mini nerve agent poisoning to warn Abramovich to not forget who his allegiance should belong to. And everyone made a full recovery, but yeah, apparently they were in immense pain for 24 hours. And of course, the US said it was environmental factors that caused this, but BBC security correspondent Frank Gardner said, I quote, it would hardly be surprising that the US would want to dampen down suggestions that anyone, especially Russia, had used a chemical weapon in Ukraine, as this could push them into retaliatory action that they are extremely reluctant to take. Yeah, Putin is not looking good with one dead hand and the other on the button. So who knows? I think he may be right. Me too. And my first reaction was to get a bit upset at Biden for not sending U.S. troops there as yet another red line was crossed. And not only with Abramovich because he's Russian and, you know, to be honest, my heart is not breaking for Roman Abramovich. But we know there were reports of a gas similar to sarin, but much less powerful being used in Mariupol. But then I realized that there were no actual victims in either case. These chemical weapons that were used were not being used to actually kill. It was more like a flex from Putin. And I think the U.S. responded in the best way possible at this moment because we sent Nancy Pelosi to Kyiv. She and the team of House Democrats met with President Zelensky. And Pelosi, on behalf of the U.S., said, thank you for your fight for freedom. Your fight is a fight for everyone. Our commitment is to be there for you until the fight is over. So we pretty much made this very official public commitment to Ukraine. And Pelosi, being in Kyiv at a time when the city is still being bombarded sporadically, it's a strong signal to Putin. Yeah, I saw that photo of uh, Pelosi and Zelensky on the steps of the presidential palace in Kyiv. Yeah, that photo of Volodymyr Zelensky and Nancy Pelosi is almost perfect. What is missing is the Zelensky and Biden pets photobombing the shot. That for me would have been the photo of the year. Are we going to talk more about pets? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean... Anyway, back to our sheep. Another of Sandra's Romanian (laughs) expressions. (laughs) Along with Chicken Springs. (laughs) He who has the money usually has the power, but Putin doesn't really have these luxury items and the money on paper. They either belong to the state or belong to relatives and friends who he has given corporations to. Yes, on paper, Vladimir Putin owns the following. An 800-square-foot apartment, a trailer, two cars and a modest salary of only $140,000 a year. But look, regardless of who holds the title, there are some ridiculous things in Putin's list of luxury items. It seems that his private jet has a gold toilet, which makes one consider whether Trump is emulating Putin or Putin is emulating Trump since since gold toilets is a thing for both of them. But yeah, I would say Trump probably 
is emulating pudding. I have mined the internet of all of the toilet content. Trust me, there's more to come. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and look, the first yacht is the lesser one. He's moved up in the world, people. And since that one was involved in a UK legal dispute in 2010... The newer one, named Scheherazade, has six floors instead of three. (laughs) Gold toilet paper handles. (laughs) Gold faucets. And what can only be described as cocaine-inspired trim. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) The whole interior of this thing is straight out of Scarface. And there's a tile dance floor that converts into a pool, a self-leveling pool table to smooth out the waves while you're playing, random placement of pink indirect lighting, you know, like your typical Eastern European mafia on strip club. And the designer said that, I quote, every surface of the ship is made of marble or gold. A floating bar from Scarface. It's cool, but you know what? A yacht is kind of slow, so if I need to be in there in a hurry, you know, zoom, 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 (laughs) what have we got for private jets? Spoiler alert, more gold toilets. (laughs) (laughs) We have an empire of gold toilets. Yes, Putin's flagship private jet is an Ilushin 96300, which is basically the Russian equivalent of a 747, like Air Force One. And there's a gym inside, gold trim, of course, on all the tables, and yes, another gold toilet. (laughs) (laughs) Putin's room aboard the airplane has a king-sized bed, and it appears that the paneling uh, of the walls in that room has the same gold trim as the tables. So, things you ought not to have seen, but cannot unsee (laughs) when you are forced to research for a podcast episode. Toiletguru.com, everybody. (laughs) This is the source of everything toilet. And you think this is a joke, but I assure you that it is not. Toiletguru.com is good. And I'm not, I'm not laughing. I'm not joking. It is good. It seems like a joke, but it's actually a great website in terms of documenting the author's travels to notable historical sites. And he describes himself as the Indiana Jones of toilets. And honestly, the internet world demands that there be a toiletguru.com. Well, but what is a toilet without a 700 euros Venetian toilet brush to clean it up? (laughs) (laughs) There's a leaked invoice that wound up in Alexei Navalny's video about Putin's palace on the Black Sea pointing out this Italian toilet brush that was delivered for a final price of 700 euros. You know, we mentioned in the premium episode about the KGB and the Stasi that Putin was apparently fascinated with Western consumer culture and would spend hours looking at catalogs to keep up with the latest fashion trends. And these Italians who sell $750 toilet accessories must be designing their whole brand around appealing to the world's (laughs) <laughs> spendy despots. The company is named <laughs> the company is named Cristofari and they have dozens of websites that read like fashion catalogs from the 80s and 90s. I can imagine Putin at one of his long tables spending hours perusing the toilet accessory websites from Cristofari to make sure he gets precisely the right <laughs> toiletries for his palaces. <laughs> yes, and uh uh, we're going to hit up Christo Fari for some ad dollars because... 
they're not paying us today, but uh, we'll see what we can do. <laughs> well, and none of we'll the dis- companies we said are paying us. Let's be honest. We just keep throwing uh, yes, names nobody. out there. We got to stop that. Yeah. No more <laughs> yeah. of that. And we'll discuss the palaces in a minute. But since you mentioned the premium episode, let's tell the people a bit about our latest. It's called Putin's Private Life. Yes, you guys, besides the two official daughters and the kids with the gymnasts, the alleged four kids he has with Kabaeva, right? There's also another love child, an Instagram influencer named Luisa Rozova. She's 18, 19 years old. Yeah. In Putin's private life, we also discussed his honeymoon in three guesses. Ukraine, yes. And the purity test he arranged for his ex-wife, Ludmilla, before he proposed. It is comical. It's insane. Yes. And guys, you can support UBS and also get the premium content by becoming a patron of our podcast and getting exclusive access to our premium episodes on dubiouspod.com. That's D-U-B-I-O-U-S-Pod.com or by clicking on the Become a Patron link in the episode notes. You will get two full episodes a month every other Monday in addition to our free episodes every Thursday. All of these ad-free. And by the way, we're not using Patreon, so the subscription process is super easy. It takes you three seconds to sign up. Well, 10 seconds, but still very, very easy and fast. Not the usual hassle. Yeah, we do need support from you guys, by the way. <laughs> Nobody's doing this but us. This is us in our spare time with no editing team, no sound technicians, no researchers, none of that stuff. If we show up on Google, it's because we stayed up for 18 hours a day. (laughs) We are regular people with regular busy lives, just like you, and we work on this podcast on nights and weekends. So you can also help a lot by following or adding our podcast to your pod list on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to us. That way you can get all our free episodes every week too. And please retweet and share our content and recommend us to your friends. We are a dubious pod across all social media platforms. And unlike our boy Putin, we don't have palaces and yachts. So even typing out a review would be appreciated. But speaking of palaces, there are palaces, of course, more than one. But again, neither Putin nor anyone in his family own them on paper. They're all property of either the state or one of the corporations controlled by an oligarch. The Black Sea Palace, according to Navalny, is actually owned by the FSB, who say they use it for, quote, educational and research activities. (laughs) What, I wonder, does the FSB need to educate people about in terms of operating a vineyard? Maybe they poison the grapes. Or... A stripper pole that mechanically descends from the ceiling in the hookah smoking room. Or the on-site casino. Or the hockey rink outside. Or the ancient Orthodox church on the grounds imported brick by brick from Greece. Well, thoughts and prayers to the FSB. (laughs) Well, they've got to pray after getting educated by slender, beautiful women on that pole. That's how religion works. You sin, you pray, you're clean, rinse and repeat. It's like money laundering, but for the soul. And they definitely need a cleanse for their soul. In a 2012 report from former Deputy Prime Minister Boris Nemtsov, before the Black Sea Palace was built, there was a list of 20 residences, including a whole ski lodge and at least two Tsar-era palaces, 15 helicopters, two more yachts, besides the two we mentioned previously, four 43 private jets and the collection of 11 watches worth around uh, $700,000. 
And all the while, Putin describes his work as president is, quote, like being a galley slave. <laughs> I work from morning until night for the people of Russia. <laughs> the, the nerve he has, I swear. But, you know, it's like he enjoys toying with uh, journalists and gossip columnists, isn't it? Because at the same time he says these crazy things, there are photos and videos of him giving one of those expensive watches to random people in a crowd. Yeah, it's all for show. He, I agree. He loves it. Uh, it's like the photo on his birthday with the Photoshop bear. He knows what will get him in the press. And I think he loves going back and forth with gossip columnists. Yes, I think so too. And despite the lengths he goes to to hide who owns the things he uses, there are some examples we can point to about how all of this works. So there is the case of a Swiss tattoo artist who was listed as the owner of a company that transferred over $300 million to one of Putin's oligarchs, a man named Suleiman Kerimov. At the same time this was going on, the same company managed to hide $700 million in real estate transactions from tax authorities, mostly in the UK and France. Yeah, Kerimov was at the center of the Russian banking business in the 1990s. And he invested his bank money in Gazprom, one of the oil and gas companies that Russia was so proud of in those days, and somehow managed to become the owner of Polyus Gold, Russia's most profitable gold mining company. Yep, and the sale of the gold mining company left money burning a hole in his pocket that he predictably spent in London on a mansion known as One Cornwall Terrace which was at the time of the purchase one of the most expensive terraced houses ever sold in the history of the United Kingdom. And for our American listeners, apparently a terraced house in British terms is what we call a row house in the U.S. So it shares a wall with the neighbors on either side. So it isn't even a whole house. It's uh, like a big condo. Yeah, right? Just your everyday 80 million pound condo. <laughs> and anyway, as we expected, like with so many other billionaires... Uh, spending their ill-gotten money around the world, Kerimov has no problem spending money on jets, houses, and cars, like the Ferrari he wrecked on the Nice Promenade in 2006, but he does have a problem with spending money on taxes. So he hired a Swiss accountant named Alexander Stutthalter to put all of this stuff into offshore corporations and hide the true owners of those corporations to make it as difficult as possible for tax authorities to find them. At one point, the Swiss accountant started running out of people to hide money behind, and he had a tattoo guy named Renato Coppo from his hometown sign some of the foreign shell company documents. Coppo's company transferred over $100 million in assets to another company owned by Kerimov's nephew in 2013. The total amount of wire transfers sent to various companies by the nephew amounted to about $700 million at the time. I think it's time to fold up the podcast and look into the lucrative business of <laughs> tattoo shops in Switzerland. We seem to be in the wrong line of work. <laughs> or if you know how to play an instrument, or if you're good at judo, that could work too. As Putin has been laundering his money through a cellist named Sergei Rudolgin, this guy is an orchestra musician and the godfather of his daughters. And Putin has also been laundering money through Boris Rotenberg, his brother Arkady, and even Arkady's son, Igor Rotenberg. And he's laundering money through his wife Lyudmila, through her husband too, his daughters, his mistress, everyone. And even Svetlana Krivonogic, mother of Luisa Rozova, the influencer daughter. She is definitely helping him hide his wealth as well. 
And there are so many names and associates like Timchenko, Kolbin, and Kovalchuk. And we'll drop all the links with the details for all these stories in the notes. But yes, Neil, do you know how to play the cello or at least the piano or something? Because I could use a yacht. No, I have no musical talent. But all of this came out in a large document leak since named the Pandora Papers and has been researched and published by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And yes, that sounds exactly like the Panama Papers because it's basically the same thing. Uh, The Panama Papers were about a law firm in Panama who also leaked documents that were published by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. The Panama Papers detailed how a law firm in that country hid money and assets from taxation for people like former UK Prime Minister David Cameron's father and Margaret Thatcher's son and Marine Le Pen's father, the son of the former UN Secretary General Kofi Annan. The the list goes on and on. So basically, none of this is very new. The Russians are simply using the exact same methods that Western billionaires and corporations and politicians use to hide their money. The only difference is the Western oligarchs sort of abstract themselves from politics by literally purchasing politicians to open up tax loopholes for them, whereas Putin does a bit of, shall we say, cost-cutting by enforcing his power with the threat of retribution from the FSB, and requiring the oligarchs' corporations to provide him with his luxurious items and perks. Yes, that's the gist of it. Some oligarchs found smart ways to run their shady businesses and move their money under the radar. But this is hard to do. You have to find the right person. I remember Berezovsky, I think, whom Putin suicided, uh, had an accountant with fantastic memory. And he paid that guy an exorbitant amount just to make sure there was a minimal paper trail. That guy remembered all the account numbers, passwords, everything. Nothing was ever emailed, texted, nothing. Everything was in his head. And we're talking international transactions, businesses everywhere from Canada to US to New York. And everything was done over secure phone lines, I guess. And, you know, I was going to say photographic memory, but I guess it was just a great memory all around because there was no paper trail. But Putin, he keeps his assets in Russia, and he even warned the oligarchs about keeping theirs outside of Russia. He wants them in Russia, outside the reach of the Western sanctions. Yeah, so that their assets can be in his reach. That's his problem with Abramovich. (laughs) I mean, Abramovich has a $4 billion football team in the UK. So it's hard to influence a guy who's got British money coming his way. Exactly. That's why the oligarchs want and prefer to have at least part or most of their assets abroad. Because outside Russia, the president can't steal your assets and make you a poor guy overnight. It's illegal. In Russia, it's not. And, you know, London is oligarch haven. London runs on Russian money. I feel, you know, places like London, the French Riviera, and other places where the oligarchs hide their money are offering something Russia cannot. And that is rule of law, the sanctity of private property. So in a way, these oligarchs perverted a concept or a system that is good. You know, it's aimed to protect people's assets, but they perverted it into a way to protect their illegal pillages. But sanctions can, and this time they did get a bit of the reacts, planes, whatever, still a better option for the oligarchs and the lower risk option for them, if you ask me. Sure. And let's be honest, they're prepared for sanctions. They won't be affected drastically or 
not irreparably, they found a way to keep their wealth beyond the reach of the West for the most part, and so did Putin. Absolutely. And look, it's Western companies who helped them do it. Let's, let's be honest. It's New York firms and London firms who facilitate these shady operations, and they use offshore daisy chains of companies to obscure the money. And the oligarchs hate, absolutely hate, any anti-corruption legislative initiative, that's clear. To me, it seems that as Ukraine, for example, cracked down on corruption more and more over the last decade, Putin's discontent with them grew proportionally. And lots of people in his circles have had deep financial connections to Ukraine. Yes, some oligarchs have been making quite a bit of money by pillaging natural resources in Ukraine, just like they do in Russia. And since we're talking oligarchs, former Soviet satellite countries they pillaged, and we've gone through an example of how these people go about hiding their riches today, I think it would also be interesting to talk about how they got them in the first place, which is something that you've seen firsthand in your home country in Romania, right, Sandra? Yes, it was crazy. And this happened in Russia and all the former countries of the USSR as soon as the Soviet Union fell between 1988 and 1991. And before then, in all these countries, the state owned everything, right? So from factories to oil and gas companies to the agricultural industry, energy, telecommunications companies, everything was state owned. Once the USSR fell, in order to help these economies stand a chance of integration in the global market, a process of privatization of all these companies was started. And this is what happened in Romania too, and it also happened in Russia. This is how the oligarchs were born, privatization, which as a concept, it was great. You know, we do want property to be private. We want to have a healthy market competition. That's what capitalism is, right? So, except that it didn't go that way. I guess you can take the country out of the communist system, but you can't take the communist system out of the country. It takes decades because, look, in the end, there are only less than 1% of people who got filthy rich, and these people became the state in a way. So the whole power to the people and equal chances stuff was not what followed, at least not immediately. It took decades for things to get back on track, and there are still some countries that are struggling with this situation. Not Romania, though. We're NATO, European Union. We passed all the tests, thank the universe. But yeah, it was difficult. Yeah, I mean, the the boss tends to stay the boss. So what followed, and more importantly, what exactly was the privatization process? So there was the Yeltsin perestroika privatization phase. We had Iliescu as the president then, a Kremlin politruk pretty much. But that phase was bad. Oh, but the voucher privatization is the insane one. Let's say you have a state-owned gas company, Yukos or Gazprom, for example. To privatize it, you basically want to give it to the people, right? For people to own it. So you do it in phases, and in phase one, you give one privatization certificate to each citizen, one voucher for each citizen, right? And most Romanians and most Russians didn't know what to do with these vouchers. These vouchers on their own were not really life-changing things, so they weren't that valuable. So this thing started to happen where Sergei's in gold chains started buying vouchers in small villages from people for, let's say, $5 each, right? And then they'd sell them in a package to another Sergei dealer in a bigger city. And then that Sergei would sell all these blocks. So there ended up being packages of 30,000 vouchers or more, right? Being sold to these main consolidators in the capitals. And then the future oligarchs would buy many, 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 many of these consolidated blocks of vouchers, the big ones, 
And these were basically the currency to get lots of shares in a big company, right? And then they'd go to auctions with these blocks of vouchers and buy massive, massive parts of profitable companies like Lukoil or Rome Telecom or Ros Telecom. So in Russia and very similar to Romania, the government gave 150 million vouchers, one to each citizen. And these vouchers were all together, roughly 30% of all Russian, you know, Romanian, Ukrainian, whatever country companies. So people would get about 30% in vouchers of each big company. Now, the market price for each voucher was at the very most $20. So basic math, 20 multiplied by 150 million, 3 billion. So since these vouchers were exchangeable for 30% of all the shares of all Russian companies, for example, this meant that the valuation of the entire Russian economy was only 10 billion which is less than one-tenth the value of Walmart. This was robbery. This was pillaging. This was looting. And the same goes for all the former Soviet Union countries, like buying a Ferrari for $100. So yes, the future oligarchs took these blocks of vouchers to auctions for these companies and got rich that way. The Yeltsin administration had some clever schemes too when they ran short of cash in the early days. In Moscow, when Putin was Yeltsin's chief of staff, they came up with a plan by which the Russian banks would loan money directly to the Yeltsin administration in exchange for the Yeltsin administration giving them more shares of newly formed corporations that were being formed to hold the Soviet assets. So, of course, the loans were never repaid and thus the shares are still in the hands they were given to. Just a paper shuffle, in a way, to give state assets to all the old party bosses who remained in favor of Yeltsin and could influence his elections, basically. Yep, and that was the loans for shares phase. It was the same in Romania, but to me the voucher auctions are the craziest part. So, these auctions were not like normal auctions. If all the people in Bucharest showed up with, you know, one voucher each, let's say, then the block of shares being auctioned would be divided among every single voucher that was submitted at the auction, right? But if one single person showed up with a single voucher, then the entire block of shares being auctioned would be exchanged for that one voucher. And <laughs> it's, you it's, can imagine That's crazy. What... <laughs> I know, but it was, it was a system set for failure and for fraud, yes. right? Because you can imagine what happened next. Factions and people wanting these companies started doing crazy things to stop others from attending right, the auctions. that's the obvious thing, yes. <laughs> I mean, there was a case where an entire airport was shut down 24 hours before the auctions to avoid big contenders flying in. And there was another case of a highway being blocked with stacks of burning tires so cars can't pass through to reach the auction. Insanity. <laughs> but... <laughs> But yes, this is how the oligarchs happen. This is exactly how. Ah, uh, the old Springfield tire fire. It's a plague to us all. So uh, <laughs> our Simpsons people will get that. Thankfully, the Yeltsin administration that Putin came up in had the help of some Harvard economists to help them devise plans to steal money from their own country, too. A few stories of which are detailed in, honestly, one of the best articles I've ever read about the fall of the Soviet Party and the Russian transition to a corporate oligarchy. I can't remember how many times I've recommended this article and uh, emailed it and texted it to other people, but we'll make sure it's in the notes. It was written by a man named David McClintock and was published in a finance journal named Institutional Investor. The title is How Harvard Lost Russia. 
and it details how a few Harvard econ professors under the supervision of a former U.S. Treasury Secretary, Larry Summers, thought they were going to insert themselves as majority shareholders in the clearing bank of the entire Russian economy with a $400,000 loan from one of the Harvard professor's dentist uncle in Idaho. It is absolutely nuts. It all ended in hurt feelings, fraud charges, and tears. And the most complicit professors got themselves some federal criminal records out of the deal. And, trigger warning, contain your empathy. They had to take out a $2 million mortgage on their lovely home in Newton, Massachusetts to pay their fines. But, of course, they all still work at Harvard and have since been promoted to named chairs and named professorships. Yeah, and there are some quite familiar names in the Harvard econ fraud story, too. Yes, we have our good friend Anatoly Chubais. And while the Harvard econ nerds did have to take out that loan, it's not like they missed out on profit entirely. Because they were early initial investors in... Gazprom. Surprise. (laughs) Of course they were. Of course they were. And their $200,000 investment in Gazprom netted a 500% profit, according to the article. So they're not too bad off. No. And yes, Chubais has had his hands in so many shady places, situation, businesses. I mean, he was in Davos with Berezovsky and Kororkovsky when Yeltsin was running again for office and his numbers in the polls were kind of low. So they built him back up because they needed him in power just a bit longer so they can, you know, steal some more during the privatization so that they can deposit their loot abroad and, you know, hard to detect while they live their lavish lives. So all of this has landed us pretty much where we started. It's doom and gloom after all, isn't it? All of these Russian mobsters are hiding their money in offshore assets and offshore accounts while paying Republicans to tell us we simply cannot afford free healthcare, a human right all civilized countries have, or free education. And just one more thing, when I say Berezovsky and Khodorkovsky, yes, they are oligarchs, but they are not criminals or mobsters. These were like the good oligarchs, so to speak, honestly, because there are the really bad ones who are actually mafia people. Yeah. You know, Khodorkovsky and Berezovsky were like businessmen. I, I included them with the oligarchs because they are, but just to make that differentiation, because I think it's important, yes. Yeah, no kidding, there's no money for healthcare and education, because everybody with a London Terrace house, a Ferrari, and an O-Zero Dacha has ducked out of paying their taxes. I wonder why (laughs) there's no money. And there's still lots of gasoline in that pipeline going from Russia to Germany, overseen by the watchful eye of Putin's Stasi buddy, Matthias Varnig, too. Yeah, funny you mentioned that. I wanted to point out that by data from Statista, Ukraine gets 90%, if not more, of their military aid from the United States. So far, 4.77 billion euros. Second country helping Ukraine is Estonia, with 0.22 billion euros. Bravo, Estonia. A small, not as rich as UK country, and UK is number three on this list, by the way. And Germany, ugh, Germany must get their ducks in a row because they are number six on the list with just 0.13 billion euros. And Germany is, let's be honest, the richest, most powerful country in Europe, the engine of Europe in a way. So I'm disappointed a bit to see that they're dragging their feet in helping Ukraine. I mean, still dragging their feet even now after so much time since the invasion began. And I think a lot of German people also agree. Yes, the Germans are entirely dependent on Russian oil and gas. And, you know, there are reasons why 
things are that way. And some of them might be by choice, like picking the wrong pipeline offer, but uh, we'll do that in another episode. Uh, Maybe we should do more episodes about dogs and cats. Dogs and kitties. It's definitely more uh, peaceful. (laughs) Anyways, do we have books? Yes, we do have books. Because we discussed privatization, corruption, and murder by Putin, for anyone who stays between him and the money he wants to steal or conceal, I'm going to recommend Red Notice by Bill Browder. The most important part, and why you should read this book, is the murder of Sergei Magnitsky while in prison in Russia because he exposed a massive theft scheme from Hermitage Capital by, well, Putin, basically. And the Magnitsky case is something everyone should know about. It is a crazy, crazy story. And Browder was there in Russia trying to do business, but you can't do legit business in Putin's Russia. He won't let you. And Magnitsky was his lawyer, a Russian guy who believed in the rule of law. And guys, I cried throughout half the time reading Red Notice. And also Browder's most recent book is, as expected, excellent also. It's called Freezing Order. And truly, these are two titles you have to have in your library if you're into Putin and Russia. And unlike the oligarchs, we're not getting any money from recommending books. We only recommend stuff we really, really like. So you can rely on our recommendations. And let's remind our people that we also post two premium episodes every month, one every other Monday. You can get them by clicking the link in the episode notes or by going to dubiouspod.com. There's a promo code on our page. You can get 50% off of the normal price of our premium episodes forever. It's only going to be there until 50 people use it, so don't miss out on that. Yes, and if you like us... A five-star rating and maybe even a review if you have a moment would be really helpful. We are at DubiousPod on Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and Facebook. And we have cool episode graphics there and also sound bites from our premium episodes if you want to check those out. That's it. See you guys next time. 